Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, delaying assisted death for the mentally ill. The question here is a state of readiness. The health minister says more time will be given to consider how to deliver the procedure safely, but does delaying ignore medical evidence and give in to prejudice? We'll speak to Senator Stan Kutcher, who is calling on the government to move forward sooner, not later. Also, a second term for Joe Biden or a second term for Donald Trump? We'll speak to Canada's ambassador in Washington to find out how this country should be preparing for either outcome. And with affordability, the Trudeau Liberal stated goal, how well is the government doing? We'll speak to the Unifor President Lana Payne to get a worker's perspective. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. It is very clear that Ottawa will not meet its March 17 deadline to extend medically assisted death to the mentally ill. The federal health minister says he will introduce legislation to push that date back, a delay recommended by a joint parliamentary committee that looked into the matter and asked for by several provinces and territories who say they are just not ready. I think that the uh, that there's very clear that mental suffering and physical suffering have equivalency. The question here is a state of readiness. And so what I, what I think we're gonna be looking for on that basis is the preponderance of reasonable opinion um, that the system is ready. Uh, and at this point in time, that isn't the case. Uh, and you know, when, you, when I don't have any, uh, any province or territory coming forward and saying their system is ready, that certainly is an indication that it's not there. And that we need to be able to take the time to, uh, to be able to make sure that this gets right. Well, joining us now is Nova Scotia Senator Stan Kutcher. He was one of three senators who filed a dissenting opinion to the committee's report. Senator, good to see you again. Thank you for joining us. Nice to see you and thank you for asking me. So the Joint Committee, the majority of its members, they say that made for individuals with mental illness should not be granted until safety concerns are addressed, until capacity concerns are addressed. They're backed up by provinces and territories. But you don't agree. Are those not valid grounds for a delay? Well, we, the committee reported that the medical system in Canada is not ready, but the committee didn't study the medical system in Canada. In fact, what the committee was supposed to study was whether or not the federal government's contribution to preparedness had been achieved. Remember, this is an amendment to the criminal code. It's not a prescription for providing health care. That's the responsibility of the provinces. The committee did not hear from each of the provinces saying they were or weren't ready. In fact, the committee did get briefs from a number of provinces saying that the provinces were ready. Uh, the committee suppressed those briefs. So uh, I'm not sure where the information is coming from that all the provinces and territories are saying they're not ready. You're not sure, although you, you do in the, the dissenting opinion say that uh, prejudice and stigma against people with mental disorders is reinforced by the majority recommendation. How exactly does it do that? Well, what it does, it, it, it implies quite clearly that people who have a mental illness are not capable or competent, not able to make decisions about their own bodies, about their own end-of-life care, although all other Canadians are able to do so. 
The other issue about this is people who have a medical illness and a mental illness are not addressed here in the report, and yet they are able to make those decisions. So this is an issue of equity. This is an issue of charter rights of a vulnerable group of people having the same charter rights that every other Canadian has to all kinds of health care, regardless of the type of health care. So how do you close that circle then? If on the one hand you have uh, the charter rights uh, of Canadians, as you say, not being represented in this, up against, uh, say, a province or a jurisdiction that says it's not quite ready, doesn't have the capacity of the training to actually carry through with this, how do you close that circle uh, without delaying it? It happens all the time in Canada. Not every province provides every kind of health care right now. And provinces are free to provide the kinds of health care that they wish to provide. The federal government issue is an amendment to the criminal code, the same way that the federal government amended the criminal code around contraception. Prior to 1969, for example, it was illegal to have sexual intercourse using contraception for the prevention of pregnancy. That was changed the same way that the criminal code was amended to allow for same-sex sex. So that before it was a criminal offense to have sex with, a, with, a, with the same-sex partner. The same way that the criminal code was amended to address women's right to choose. All these things were amendments to the criminal code, which is in the federal government's jurisdiction. The issue of how the provinces choose or don't choose to deliver care, that's their jurisdiction. They will choose how to do that. So do you think a value judgment came into this process as opposed to just sticking to the mandate? I don't know what came into this process, but the mandate was clear to the committee and the committee did not fulfill its mandate. In fact, the federal government had identified three criteria in a letter that Minister Duclos wrote uh, in October of 2022 that identified the three issues that the federal government had responsibility for in terms of preparedness. The first was a database that addressed the multiple aspects of MAID. That was the responsibility of Health Canada. That is done. The second was a model practice standard for the provinces to assist regulators in each of the provinces that they would be able to bring in the regulations of medical care related to MAID in those provinces. That is done. In fact, we heard from the head of the federal regulatory body that it is ready. And then the third thing was a training program that was to be able to assist people to do a better job in made in general, including made for soul mental disorder. That is done. And not only that, that program has actually been um, accredited by the Royal College and by the College of Family Physicians. And that's also done. Mm -hmm. Well, at this point, we know that the, the health minister says he will introduce legislation to delay it, uh, for, delay the, ex the extension one more time. How do you react to that? What's your advice to, to the government at this point if this is the course that they've decided on? Well, I would hope that the federal government, regardless of which party is in power in the federal government, follows the charter. And that uh, the issue here is a charter rights issue. And if the committee has done a very poor job, which I think it has, the majority of reports has done a very poor job in assessing preparedness, that for the federal minister to deny Canadians a charter right on the basis of a faulty majority report in the committee, that's a problem. 
Senator Stan Kutcher, I always appreciate the conversation. Thank you for this. And thank you for taking the time on this important topic. To U.S. politics now, where Donald Trump continues to be the likely Republican nominee in the upcoming presidential vote. Today, the Illinois State Board of Elections dismissed a petition that would have removed Trump from the state's primary ballot. Signatories arguing the former U.S. president violated the Constitution by allegedly trying to overturn the 2020 election. But the state board said it did not have jurisdiction to decide that matter. So, pending an expected appeal, Donald Trump's name will stand. Well, joining us now is Canada's ambassador to the United States, Kirsten Hillman. Ambassador, thank you for taking the time. It's great to be here. Thank you. So, uh, listen, I want to begin with, of course, the upcoming U.S. election, because you were just in Montreal uh, talking to the government and to, to cabinet uh, about the, the situation in the United States. Uh, the prime minister announced the, essentially the relaunch of this Team Canada approach. How much of a concern is Donald Trump for Canada? Well, you know, I, I think that the thing to remember is that our country and the U.S. were so deeply integrated, even more now than we were even five, six years ago because of COVID and supply chain disruptions. So we've kind of doubled down on our relationship with each other. And that relationship persists because of the millions of relationships that have Americans and Canadians have together all the time. Um, that generally means that what we're doing together is productive and smooth and, and, and run gives us both a source of strength for each other. Uh, but sometimes it means that there are tensions because we have different um, goals nationally. So I think the most important thing to remember is regardless of who's in the White House, we're largely in sync, but often we'll have areas that we need to work on. And, and that's a lot about what the, the um, Canada task force that the prime minister announced is designed to address, to make sure we have those relationships strong, those lines of communication strong, so that we can address tensions when they come up. Mm -hmm. But would a, a second Biden administration be easier for this country? You know, we have had a really good relationship with the Biden administration. We've done some really important things together. But don't forget, we had some pretty important achievements with the Trump administration, too. We renegotiated the NAFTA. It was modernized. It was brought up to date. It was a, an agreement that did need modernization. And it's a great success story. Trade between Canada, the U.S. and Mexico is higher than it's ever been. And so that's an important achievement that we had with that administration. And I'm confident that, you know, uh, should former President Trump be reelected, we will have other successes with them. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you, you talk about this Team Canada approach, this, this initiative, but... How different is it really than what you're meant to be doing anyway? You know, you, you, the, we heard the Prime Minister talk about Canadians talking to Americans, reminding them the importance of Canada, the importance of Canadian trade. But isn't that what goes on day to day? How different really is this approach from what is the status quo between Canada and the United States? Yeah, no, I think that's a really good question. And it's something that we talked about as we were moving forward to launch this. And this is the difference. Yes. Our embassy in Washington, our team across the United States, is busy building and re reinforcing relationships and you know, pr promoting Canadian interests all the time across the country. But what's different this time and now over the next the course of this year is that we're going to be very intentional and systematic about it. So my team uh, across the U.S. since the summer has been mapping kind of our presence and our relationships and our lines of communication in every single state and looking at where we feel, okay, we really do have um, 
a good voice into the elected officials, into the influencers, into the business community, into the academic community. But some places we might have some gaps. And so this is the task force is the Canadian sort of corollary of the work that we're doing in the United States to go across the country, to understand from Canadians, from all levels of government, from all business sectors, from all communities, from unions, from civil society groups, what's going well in the U.S. for you? And can we go down there? Can you help us reinforce that in a systematic, intentional way? So th that's what it is. It, it's more of the same. It's like leaning in to, as you say, what we do all the time, but, you know, putting it, uh, putting it in, in high gear. And does that work start now? Again, the election is still months away, but is that particular lean-in starting to take place already? Yes, it is. Like, as I say, in the U.S., we've been at it since the summer, um, and this and including with Canadian interlocutors, you know, making sure as they're in the United States that they're they're really making they're strengthening all of the relationships that they have. Um, but this is this is as I say, turning it up even more. Okay, but as you say that though, you know, you, you, Donald Trump, as you and I speak, he's not yet secured uh, the, the Republican nomination, but already he's talking about imposing this 10% tariff on any goods sold in the United States, not made in the United States. Mm -hmm. When uh, now private citizen, former President Donald Trump says something like that, who stands up for Canada in the U.S.? Are we hearing voices pushing back on that already, or is that a debate that Canadians need to pick up to make sure that uh, Canadian companies and, and products are not harmed? All of the above, right? We need Canadians who are deeply integrated with their American partners, business partners, investment partners, supply chain partners, to activate those American partnerships and to say, hey, look at this relationship that you have with us, Canada, that is a source of strength for you, that is a source of prosperity for you, that is a source of jobs for you. Um, this needs to be maintained. And so when there are policies that could potentially come out of a future White House that are going to inhibit that, that are going to diminish that, yes, Canada will raise its voice, but it's really important that our American partners raise their voice because they're the ones who vote. Already? Are we hearing? They, they, we are. We are doing that already and we will do it more. But I would like to say on the 10% tariff, you know, Canada will go into that conversation should uh, former President Trump re-enter the White House and say, well, we have the NAFTA, the re or the CUSMA, which is the renegotiated NAFTA. And under that agreement, Canada-US trade is 99% tariff-free. And we just negotiated that with his previous administration. So I think our, our, our position is that 10% tariff policy wouldn't apply to Canada, wouldn't apply to Mexico, because we have just secured this incredibly, as I said, modernized deal that is having really important economic impacts for all three countries. Which has to be reviewed, though, in a couple of years' time. That's right. So is that just deferring, perhaps, a, a tariff or any type of punitive policy that might come from a U.S. administration? In these conversations with the Americans, not only the White House, but everybody who has an interest in a strong and prosperous Canada, U.S., Mexico economic uh, partnership, you have to talk about the facts, right? You have to talk about the benefits of the regime that we have just recreated. As I say, the facts speak for themselves. Our, our trade with the Americans and the Mexicans and their trade with us in Mexico, all-time historical high all-time historical prosperity being brought through that arrangement to our three countries. Um, so you start there. 
And then you say, well, if that's the case, if it's working, let's let's double down on what's working. Let's not go backwards. Mm -hmm. Quickly running out of time, but I do want to ask you, because, you know, Canadians are so much focused on trade when we talk about the United States. But but Americans, it seems, as of late, are, is much more, are much more focused on defense, continental mm -hmm. defense, our, our, our relationship with NATO. And, of course, Donald Trump, when he's the last time U.S. president, criticized Canada for its contribution to NATO. Since then, we've seen the government promise billions of dollars of investment, in particular for, for NORAD, as well as the uh, F-35s. Is the criticism of Canada not stepping up enough still being heard in Washington? What more do they want, or, or are the Americans satisfied at this point? Well, I think, I, I think it's fair to say that given the amount of focus that the U.S. Uh, has to put on international activities worldwide, you know, there's a lot of conflict in the world. And given the fact that homeland security and domestic defense is always top of mind for all Americans, regardless of political affiliation, uh, defense is a very important conversation to us to have with them. And maintaining their confidence in us as a secure, sound defense partner is essential. The investments that you talk about, uh, you know, modernization of NORAD, over-the-horizon radar, really cutting-edge technology that we are, are leaning into and participating in and investing in, uh, the, the fighter jets, these are really important um, purchases and really important contributions they made and it has been noticed in Washington. So I think that to answer your question straight on, there is a deep appreciation for these recent um, announcements and these acquisitions. Uh, would the U.S. like us to do more? Probably wants everyone to do more, right? Always. Um, but are they are they very happy with the direction in which we're heading? Yes. Ambassador Kirsten Hillman, really appreciate the time. Thank you for this. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Time now for a look at what happened in politics today. The federal government says it will introduce legislation in the coming days to extend the deadline to implement controversial changes to its medical assistance in dying law. But Health Minister Mark Holland would not say what Ottawa's new timeline to extend made to people with mental illness actually is, but a majority of provincial and territorial health ministers have written to Holland asking for a delay. I rely on the provinces and territories to be able to tell us in their systems what their what, what their requirements are for state of readiness. Now, some of them are uh, ideological on this issue, absolutely. Some of them are, uh, you know, uh, their position is that they don't ever want this to occur. Um, and, and I understand that, but that is not, uh, in my view, um, a tenable position. Uh, I think that, the, uh, that there's very clear that mental suffering and physical suffering have equivalency. The question here is a state of readiness. The public inquiry examining allegations of foreign interference in the last two federal elections continued today. The Ho Commission hearing from academic experts as it determines how best to handle classified documents and issues of national security. Michael Nesbitt, a University of Calgary professor specializing in national security law, testified Tuesday that the national security community is often more secretive than transparent. Rarely, if ever, is there punishment, at least at an individual level, for failing to be fully transparent. In short, we need a balance of transparency and secrecy, yet most laws and days-to-day -day practices, the understandable cultures in national security, <laughs> operate to pressure the prioritization of secrecy. 
Canada's ethics watchdog says the Prime Minister's controversial Christmas vacation in Jamaica did not violate any rules. Ethics Commissioner Conrad von Finkenstein testified before a parliamentary committee saying Peter Green, who hosted Justin Trudeau and his family at his luxury resort for free, was indeed a friend with no ties to the federal government. The Prime Minister has stated he that Mr. Green is a friend of the family. He has been a friend for over 50 years. He has stayed at Mr. Green's property since he was a child. The Prime Minister has received gifts, one of hospitality, more than once from this friend. He has spoken publicly of this friendship and has sought advice from my office, both during my tenure and during the tenure of my predecessor. I declare the motion defeated. And the House of Commons rejected a Conservative motion calling on Speaker Greg Fergus to resign. A House committee had been studying Fergus's conduct after he filmed a tribute to outgoing Ontario Liberal leader John Fraser while in his Speaker's robes. The motion failed 178 to 149. As Parliament gets back to business, affordability remains a top priority for all parties. And yesterday we did hear from the government House Leader Steve McKinnon as he listed the issues the Liberal Party is focused on. Whether it's measures around housing, measures around uh, grocery, keeping grocery prices reasonable, uh, helping the most vulnerable in our society, or delivering on commitments like dental care. Uh, this is a um, government that is preoccupied every day with making life more affordable and making life easier for Canadians. Well, joining us now to talk about what they'd like to see from government, we are joined by Lana Payne, president of Unifor, which is Canada's largest private sector union, representing more than 300,000 workers. Hello, Lana. Hello, Michael. Good to be here. Nice seeing you again. Uh, listen, you know, Unifor has already submitted uh, its list of priorities for the upcoming federal budget. If you will, in broad strokes, what are you looking for from government as Parliament resumes? Well, we have kind of four core priorities, but many other uh, things that we'd obviously like to see the government act upon. Uh, but for sure, affordability issues are top of mind for all working Canadians at the moment and what's happening with the cost of living and, of course, housing. Uh, in there as well. Uh, employment insurance, which is always a, an issue that we feel needs improvement. Uh, industrial policies, like we've seen in auto, we need to expand this out uh, to other sectors of the economy. And of course, uh, forever and a day, we have been trying uh, to get anti-scab legislation, and this has now uh, been tabled, and uh, we want to see that fast-tracked uh, th through the House of Commons. Okay, so let's break that up a little bit. Uh, let's begin here with the affordability and industrial policy, because, you know, in, in the months since Parliament came back in September, now the, the, the Christmas break, and they're coming back from that, we have seen the Trudeau Liberals uh, focus on housing uh, through things like the Housing Accelerator, the Rental Build Program. Uh, we've seen them uh, invest billions of dollars into uh, an EV supply chain in Canada. How would you rate the government so far? Because in many ways, what you're listing as priorities are things that the government has also listed as their own priorities. I, I think that these are, are, are good steps. Uh, all of what you've just named are good steps. But clearly, we're in a situation right now where inflation is still a, a you know, not necessarily as much of a problem, except interest rates are a big problem. And we have not seen prices come down on core items 
like housing, uh, like food, like fuel. And, and this is top of mind. We see it at the bargaining table every single day that this ability to be able to pay your bills, have a good living, not go backwards, is spilling over into conflict uh, at every bargaining table that Unifor has had. Last year was a, a tumultuous year uh, in many ways, but also a year in which we made incredible gains uh, for working people. Uh, so, you know, there is more, I believe, that the government can do. We have to look at, you know, the huge profitability uh, in some of these sectors in the economy, how we can have, for example, an excess profits tax, and then take that money and make sure that we, we're redistributing it in a number of forms to help lower and middle income Canadians. This is what we expect government to do. Uh, but for sure, uh, on with respect to the EV supply chain, um, you know, they have done a tremendously good job in the auto sector, building back up the manufacturing sector, which was decimated during uh, you know, the conservative Harper years, for example. We had the global financial crisis, and it took a lot to get back to this stage. And we don't want to lose momentum here. But the reality is we have to continue on doing what we're doing in auto and then looking at all these other sectors of the economy that are also going to face a transition, whether it's in telecommunications, whether it's in forestry, you know, whether it's in aviation, transit, rail, you name one, they are all going to have to prepare themselves for the future and for the future economy. And what we're saying is government has to be part of that. Workers have to be part of that. We can't just leave it up to chance uh, that we're going to get an economy that works for everybody. We have to fight for that and we have to work towards it. Okay, you, you talk about that, but at the same time, you know, when, when the fall economic statement came out, there were already concerns being raised about the amount of deficit the government's running, the, the, the cumulative debt as a result of deficit, and really critics pointing out that already the government spends more in servicing national debt than they do on health care. Just how involved can government be? I think part of the problem there, though, is what we're seeing on interest rates. So if we can take care of that, and if Tiff Macklin uh, can can work uh, very quickly this year to get interest rates down, obviously this will help with the debt. But I mean, we have to we have to put all of this in perspective. We went through a huge pandemic that had you know drastic impacts uh, on the world, and we needed our government to act during that period. We needed them to support Canadians. We needed them to make sure that the economy was in a good place when we came out of the, out of the pandemic, and they did that. And as a result, we have some deficits out there, but we can, we can build a strong economy to help take care of those deficits too. It's not one or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk a bit about uh, the replacement workers legislation. Uh, as, as you say, it's been introduced by the government, but are you concerned that they're going to lose their resolve? Because there are those that, that are pushing back, uh, namely the Chamber of Commerce, concerned about what this will actually do and their ability to, to, to make sure manufacturing is never interrupted. Yeah, knock me over with a feather that that would be uh, the Chamber's response to any improvement to labor legislation in this country. Uh, I'm not concerned that, uh, that they will back away from this. I think it, they've made it clear that this is a, a core part of their mandate this year. Uh, it was in their, in their platform. Uh, there's a lot of pressure from the labor movement to make sure that this happens. Uh, and of course, the NDP and the bloc are supporting the legislation. What we need to see is to make sure it gets through quickly. Not sure where the Conservatives are going to be on this. Uh, you know, likely uh, they won't support it, but uh, we're going to do our best to, to try and convince them that this, this should have all party support. And uh, the, the real issue is the implementation of it. So once it receives oil, royal assent, we don't want this to be a year or 18 months down the road before it has an impact on working people's ability at the collective bargaining table to be able to, to fair, like, feel that they have a fairer system in place. So getting that period short, shortened is going to be a priority. 
Okay, so things you're watching out for. You know, before you got, we have less than a minute, but I do have to ask you because uh, already this government is getting ready for the, the U.S. election, whether it be a second Biden term or a second Trump term. They're talking about reviving or have revived this whole Team Canada approach. Where do you see Unifor fitting in that? I expect workers and Unifor to have a place on Team Canada. We need to fight for uh, fair trade uh, for workers. Uh, we did this before and we expect to be able to do it again. Lana Payne, always appreciate the time. Thank you for this. Great. Thanks so much. And that is our program for this Tuesday. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching Primetime Politics. We'll be back tomorrow, but stay with CPAC. L'Essentiel is up next.